Uh, the talk is about joy, joy beyond its objects. One of the givens of being born in the human world is being born in a mixture of pleasure and pain and joy and sorrow. To be free in this world means that we're not trying to change life in any way. We're not trying to get rid of pleasure or rid of pain to be free. If we were born into a hell realm, that's a world of almost complete suffering, almost complete pain. And you can imagine how difficult it would be to practice in that world. And if we were born in a heaven realm, the world of almost complete pleasure or complete pleasure, how difficult it would be, maybe not, (laughs) but we think (laughs) it would be difficult to practice in this world, to be motivated to practice. So we're born in this mixture of pleasure and pain, and the Buddha taught that this is the most conducive plane of existence to do spiritual work. Upandita, Sayada Upandita once said to me, it takes a lot of hard work for wisdom to penetrate the heart. What does that mean? We understand that life is a stream of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feelings in this world of changing consciousness, moment by moment, and that we have little control over it. If we think of opening to life as a flower opens, you think of a a closed flower bud, and one metaphor for awakening is the flower opening. Uh, When we open to this world, the truth of life as it is, we're opening to this mixture of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, of joy and sorrow. So when the flower bud closes, when our heart or mind closes, it closes to everything. It closes to joy and sorrow, pleasure and pain. And when we start to have the courage to open, we're opening to joy and sorrow, not just one to the, or the other. We're not just opening to pain, we're opening to pleasure. Seeing clearly, having enough balance of mind with this non-judgmental attention and equanimity helps us to open to that full range of joy and sorrow that's possible in this human world. So freedom is understanding how life is. We often think of ourselves as separate from others, from other beings that we share this world with. And yet, our heart is the world. Your heart is this mix of joy and sorrow. Pain isn't our pain. We share the pain with the whole world. Joy isn't our joy. We share the joy with the whole world. But it's so hard for us to remember that. Unpleasantness or pain will appear in this world Aversion to it is where we suffer. And I think of this aversion like a chain, or fear, like a chain that when there's an unpleasant feeling that we pick up and wrap around ourselves uh, and then tighten 
uh, all through not understanding how aversion happens. Can we break the chain of aversion? One of the times I had a pretty good glimpse of this was at a Goenka retreat. My first Goenka retreat that I did was under a big tent uh, with open sides, and there were about 200 or 250 people at the retreat. I was way in the back because I was new, uh, and I was with um, in a very crowded spot. Uh, the woman in front of me didn't seem to have a good sense of territory or boundaries. She just kept seeming to expand her territory, and my territory kept shrinking. And I was really trying to stay balanced with this, uh, my, from my perception, inequality <laughs> of space. Uh, so I was handling it uh, until the point where when she would get up, because in these retreats you get up when you want, go walk, come back. Whenever she would get up, she would kick me, walk out, do some walking, and on her way back in she'd kick me (laughs) and sit down. (laughs) And I would watch myself pick up this chain, you know, just, and strangle myself with it. I would just be furious, just murderous rage at this person, thinking all the time, you know, very rationally, that if she just understood what she was doing, she wouldn't do it. And I kept focusing on her not doing this particular behavior, and that as long as she would stop this behavior, you know, until that point, I couldn't be happy. And this went on day after day, until finally, in one moment, I noticed her having this mind state of aversion as she was sitting there. I just, I felt that she was, finally I could see that she was having a lot of painful sensations and that she was in a lot of aversion. And when she would get up, she would be in a mind state of a lot of aversion. And so she wouldn't pay attention, kick me. Uh, And then I had a choice at that point of picking up her aversion and taking it to be mine, and then strangling myself with it. It was so clear to me how it was just this chain of moments where there'd be, she would experience painful feelings, she would have aversion, she would stand up, not pay attention, kick, and go. And then I felt like I was stuck with this aversion, and I didn't have to be stuck with it. That was one of the first times in practice that I saw so clearly that it wasn't her pain, it wasn't my pain. It wasn't her aversion, it wasn't my aversion. It was just aversion. That's understanding. That's when understanding penetrates the heart. Of course, there have been many moments that I haven't been able to see clearly, and I've picked up aversion and hurt myself with it. Um, But I got a glimpse of that kind of freedom. It was like a gift um, that this woman gave me. There's a kind of joy that arises that isn't dependent on pleasure being there or pain being there. Uh, And I'm relating this to understanding. So in those moments when I had the understanding that I didn't have to pick up that chain of aversion, I was very joyful and filled with gratitude and appreciation uh, for the understanding. 
when we have a commitment to understanding of this world of pain and pleasure, it requires a willingness to face this aversion or fear of pain, or the willingness to face the attachment to the pleasure. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, we will not resort to violence. We will not degrade ourselves with hatred. We will return good for evil. We will love our enemies. Christ showed us the way, and Gandhi in India showed it could work. He also said about Malcolm X, I can't deny it. When he starts talking about all that's been done to us, I get a twinge of hate. And here's this incredible balance, you know, this deep commitment to nonviolence and then the ability to be willing to face the hatred. Now that's what it takes in us. It's that courage to have the willingness to do the work of freedom and also to face what it takes. It takes both, the commitment and then the courage. When we understand this, the practice is breathtaking and joyful. There are some situations in our life that it's better to take a long-term view in terms of how we see liberation happening rather than a short-term view. And I've had this experience over this past weekend um, where I had a very intense flu, a very intense, like incredible, unbearable headache, and then this intense vomiting. And vomiting, ever since I can remember this lifetime, I have this extreme aversion to. It, it's not rational, it's just it, some people I know are fine with vomiting, but me, <laughs> I really hate it. Uh, and I'll do anything to stop it. I mean, you know, it's just so rare that I get sick enough to go through a, a this kind of vomiting because, you know, I'm so good at avoiding it. I, in fact, I thought I had it mastered. Uh, so, of course, this weekend I got another chance to see how I relate to that level of um, unpleasantness. And this is to remember that a lot of how we relate to unpleasantness is conditioned. And so I can even look back, I know the story, I know why I have such aversion. Um, there's something from my early childhood that conditioned this intense aversion to vomiting. Even though I understand that, there's still this great reaction to it. And I look back over my life, especially with, with children. Uh, and as an adult, raising my sister's three children, whenever they would be sick, and I'd have to go in the bathroom to help them when they were vomiting, I would have this incredible fake equanimity. I mean, I'd be sort of there, yeah, it's great that you're vomiting. And then I would start throwing up. You know, I just, it was so bad. I'd be like trying to help them and I'd end up worse than the kids. <laughs> and they'd be kind of looking at me like, thanks, Michelle. And then, then I'd feel so bad. And then with Chandra, Stephen, my daughter, it was a little better, but it was still the same thing. I'd be sort of holding her out there. Like going, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> 
and vomiting. Still the same reaction. Then in my early years with Steve, he was so great. You know, he would just be like, it's okay, it's okay that you're having such a reaction. And that started to help me loosen up with this thing. And then this past weekend, I think it's because I had so much practice. It was like, it was great. You know, it wasn't just once. (laughs) You know, no matter what I did, it didn't stop it. Uh, And over time, it was just that sense, just like with that lady kicking me. You know, I didn't have to pick up the chain. And it was just no one who vomits, just (laughs) vomiting. (laughs) It was great. (laughs) Now, I can tell you with things like that in our life that we've struggled with for a long time, it's very joyful. I mean, to take something, really, I can say, to take something that's that unpleasant, and I'm saying it was unpleasant, but I had such a feeling of joy by the end of that night, that I had such little reaction to that experience. And that's what we're doing. We're not changing life in any way. We're not changing the pain. We're not changing the pleasure. But we're really looking at how our relationship with life changes through this practice of non-judgmental attention. And it's that shift in how we relate so that the level of reaction starts to diminish with a lot of patience. Uh, this is what brings this kind of joy that I'm talking about, joy beyond its objects. The Buddha taught that joy is the gateway to enlightenment. I feel that we often forget this in practice. You know, it's the gateway to the light in the mind. It's the gateway to awakening. It's no small matter. When we have enough courage to bring our attention to life just as it is, this is called courageous energy or heroic energy. And we're able, as we hear it said, to aim and connect the attention with the object, with what's happening, with our moment-to-moment experience. Interest can arise. And rapture is called joyful interest. And it's interest in whatever is happening, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And that's why it's called the gateway to freedom. Joy, it's like we're taking the very pure, soft heart of the child and that level of vulnerability and tenderness and allowing our heart, that, that purity of heart that we all have, to touch the truth of life. And it's that moment when that vulnerability of the heart, that soft, open heart, the Upandita saying, it takes a lot of hard work for understanding to penetrate the heart. It's like when we can actually have the courage for that truth of life, whatever it is, to touch that soft heart, a non-intellectual wisdom will arise. It's not something that's happened through the intellect. It's happened through us having the courage to touch the heart with the truth. So joy is described as the intense delight in exploring the truth. 
And again, it's to remember that that includes the range of joy and sorrow in this world. Joyful interest is the opposite of a judgmental mind or a righteous mind. It's the opposite of a dull or a timid mind. I like to think of joy as pure exploration. And joy happens whenever we don't have an agenda, when we're not looking for a result, when we're not trying to get something out of the practice. It's being with life just as it is. In a way, we can experience this kind of intense delight as a blessing. And it's when we've just gotten out of the way, very simply. When we understand that each moment is newborn, and so the heart is newborn and tender each moment, uh, whenever we make a connection to what's happening in the moment uh, with a breath, or with a sound, or with a flower, or with a chipmunk, uh, this pure exploration will happen. Pablo Neruda wrote his Autumn Testament uh, before he died. This is one of his poems. It's called Between Dying and Not Dying. It's part of that poem. Has anyone been granted as much joy as I have? It flows through my veins, and this fruitful, unfruitful mixture that is my nature. I've been a great flowing river with hard, ringing stones, with clear night noises, with dark day songs. To whom can I leave so much, so much and so little, joy beyond its objects, a lone horse by the sea, a loom weaving the wind. Do you think about what you're going to leave this world when you die? He's asking, to whom can I leave so much and so little? Joy beyond its objects. There was a time in my practice where I used to be in this room a lot and then take the great trip down to the lower walking room bathroom and then take the trip up, you know, and it used to take a long time in those years, that way of practicing. There was one time when I was walking up these steps, the lower walking room steps, and this pure exploration arose. Uh, and I have such a fond memory of that experience because it was so clear, that shift from kind of, you know, bumbling along, <laughs> you know, lifting, moving, spacing, lifting, moving, spacing, you know, to this incredible, like, wow, what is this? It was just like I'd never walked up a step, and I felt like a little kid learning to walk up a step, uh, and it just felt so joyful. Uh, and that was the time where I started to take steps as part of my practice, where I would really try to pay attention. Uh, so there's the steps walking out the back dining room. There's not many, uh, but there's the wonderful steps walking out of the lower walking, the upper walking room or down in. 
uh, I've been practicing that so many years that literally when I get to those steps going out of the upper walking room, no matter what state I'm in, I have this moment of joy. It's not to say that I can go through the walking through those steps with sadness or aversion or happiness. It's not that. It, the joy isn't dependent on what my mind state is. It's just that moment when I remember to be with those steps and to take them as if it's the first time. If you practice that in certain areas of this, of this place, you'll find that something starts to wear away at that dull or timid mind. And sometimes you'll have that understanding. It's like a gift. Pure exploration means that we're treating each moment equally. So it includes all experience. It includes steps. It includes the great black holes that we go through of worthlessness or self-hatred or jealousy. Um, And it includes falling stars, moments of unconditional love, or moments of mindfulness. Joy without its objects includes that incredible range that we experience in a day of practice or in long practice. All the moods And in this way, we start to see that the path of awakening has such a beauty. Pure exploration allows us to move from the conceptual realm to a more experiential level of experience, to deep understanding. We can't make it happen. What brings joy for us? And then how do we learn to appreciate it? There's nothing wrong with pleasure in our experience. You know, it's like we have to be really careful not to reject pleasure, but learn how to work with pleasure skillfully. What's important is to start to see the relationship between the experience of pleasure, enjoyment, and the possibility of appreciation, and then sometimes gratitude. When joy is present, we're often highly energized. This, there is no need to repress it. There's no need to repress this highly energized joy in practice. In fact, one learns to use it rather than repress it. It would be unskillful to repress it. It's the gateway to enlightenment. And so we learn how to use this highly energized, joyful interest skillfully, and that allows this deepening. Of course, highly energized joy can go out of balance, and it's when we get identified with it. It's when we take it personally. It's when it becomes my joy and then we need to do something with it, rather than just appreciate it. Uh, So just as we need to learn not to take aversion or fear personally and pick up that chain, we don't have to take joy personally 
and pick up the chain until it becomes attachment or we go off like a rocket. There's a way to learn how to work with joy, which is counting our blessings. And this is from a book of um, writings by American women in the pioneer days. And this is about doing laundry. Counting your blessings. It's from 1859. Number one, build fire in backyard to heat the kettle of rainwater. Set tubs so the smoke won't blow in your eyes if the wind is strong. Shave one cake of lye soap in boiling water. Sort things, make three piles, one pile white, one pile colored, one pile work, riches and rags. Five, stir flour in cold water to smooth, then thin down with boiling water for starch. Six, rub dirty spots on board, scrub hard, then pile. <laughs> rub colored, but don't pile, just wrench and starch. Seven, take white things out of kettle with broomstick handle, then wrench blue and starch. Eight, pour wrench water in flower bed. Nine, scrub porch with hot soapy water. Ten, turn tubs upside down. Eleven, Go put on a clean dress, smooth hair with side combs, brew cup of tea, sit and rest and rock a spell and count your blessings. Sometimes we need to do that after a sitting or a walking, you know. It's just time to have a cup of tea and count our blessings. Maybe we don't get that far of counting our blessings, but just taking that time and just being with that experience can open the heart. It can soften the heart. An aspect of the practice is deepening our understanding of our relationship of joy to gratitude. If we recognize our joyful moments and appreciate them rather than getting attached to the pleasure, uh, these moments of joy will increase because we're not developing attachment, we're developing appreciation. And that's the truth. And it's a good thing to develop. Uh, so in the face of all the suffering in this world, can we still recognize, value, and appreciate the joy, the simple joy in life? Often it's simple joy. And so a moment when we can really receive a breath can be a very joyful moment. We can appreciate that we've received that breath. In fact, you know, like we all know, if it didn't happen, we might be quite disturbed. And if the second breath didn't happen, we'd probably get a little more disturbed. You know, but we forget. We forget how fundamental the breath is and how grateful we could be for it at times. Or maybe we have a baked potato for lunch and there's a way of 
just taking the time instead of maybe noting chewing or swallowing, maybe we'll shift to an appreciation of receiving this food. You know, there's ways to cultivate joy. Uh, and it's possible to do it just in that shift from realizing that we're receiving the gift of nourishment. And not only is this possible, but it's important. Cultivating this kind of appreciation is the gateway to light in the mind and purity of heart. Can you imagine life here at IMS without all the other beings here? And we forget that we forget sometimes that chipmunks are our elders. And we don't often have that respect or appreciation, but they are. They've been here a lot longer than us. Uh, The birds, any being. I know people come in sometimes and when they've seen a deer, you know, they know something special has happened in their life. If the heart is open and we've allowed ourselves to be touched, it pulls us out of our self-centeredness, even if it's just for a few moments. And then there can be these moments of appreciation for these other beings that we share the planet with. Often these other beings are having a tougher time than we are. We might receive the blessing of that connection, but also they're struggling to survive on this planet. Try to reflect on what beings touch your heart and cultivate those relationships. I really work hard at cultivating my relationships with the sun, with the clouds, with trees, with birds. It's like, it's a really important aspect of my practice. Someone asked the other morning about the forest and is that metta? Well, there's a way in which we can receive a lot of happiness and joy from this connection. It's the aim the sustain, and then the connection that brings rapture, whether it's with a breath, whether it's with a sound, whether it's with a black hole, whether it's with a chipmunk. It's that connection with the truth of life, that we're not separate, that can bring this softness and purity of heart. It's not that you're developing the purity of heart, it's there, but it's through that connection that we realize it and that we can appreciate it. So much of it is learning to value this purity of heart. I read from this book called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly uh, a few talks ago, And just to remind you, it's about a man that, well, it's written by a man that had a stroke, uh, an incredibly um, massive stroke, very rare, uh, so that all he could do was blink his left eye. And he uh, blinked out this book in a few months and then died. Uh, So this chapter, (laughs) it's an amazing book, this chapter is called The Vegetable. On June 8th, it will be six months since my new life began. Your letters are accumulating on the dresser, your drawings on my wall. 
and since I cannot hope to answer each one of you, I have decided to issue these bulletins to, return, to report on my life, my cr- progress, and my hopes. At first, I refused to believe that anything serious had happened. In my semi-conscious state following the coma, I thought I would shortly be back in my Paris stomping grounds with just a couple of canes to help me along. Those were the first words of the first mailing of my monthly letter, which I decided in late spring to send to my friends and associates. Addressed to some 60 people, that first bulletin caused a mild stir and repaired some of the damage caused by rumor. The city, Paris, that monster with a hundred mouths and a hundred and a thousand ears, a monster that knows nothing but says everything, had written me off. At the Café de Flor, one of those base camps of Parisian snobbery that send up rumors like flights of carrier pigeons. <laughs> Some close friends of mine overheard a conversation at the next table. The gossipers were as greedy as vultures who have just discovered a disemboweled antelope. Did you know that Balbi is now a total vegetable, said one? Yes, I heard. A complete vegetable, came the reply. The word vegetable must have tasted sweet on the know-it-all's tongue for it came up several times between mouthfuls of Welsh rabbit. (laughs) The tone of voice left no doubt that henceforth I belonged on a vegetable stall and not to the human race. France was at peace. I couldn't shoot the bearers of bad news. (laughs) Instead, I would have to rely on myself if I wanted to prove that my IQ was still higher than a turnip. Thus was born a collective correspondence that keeps me in touch with those I love. Apart from an irrecoverable few who maintain a stubborn silence, everybody now understands that he can join me in my diving bell, even if sometimes the diving bell takes me into unexplored territory. I receive remarkable letters. They are opened for me, unfolded, and spread out before my eyes in a daily ritual that gives the arrival of the male the character of a hushed and holy ceremony. I carefully read each letter myself. Some of them are serious in tone, discussing the meaning of life, invoking the supremacy of the soul, the mystery of every existence. And by a curious reversal, The people who focus most closely on these fundamental questions tend to be people I had known only superficially. Their small talk had masked hidden depths. Had I been blind and deaf? Or does it take the harsh light of disaster to show a person's true nature? Other letters simply relate the small events that punctuate the passage of time. Roses picked at dusk the laziness of a rainy Sunday, a child crying himself to sleep. Capturing the moment, these small slices of life, these small gusts of happiness, move me more deeply than all the rest. A couple of lines or eight pages, a Middle Eastern stamp or a suburban postmark. I hoard all these letters like treasure. 
One day I hoped to fasten them end-to-end in a half-mile streamer to float in the wind like a banner raised to the glory of friendship. It will keep the vultures at bay. If you think about what touched him the most deeply, it's the, it's the letters written about these small, simple parts of life that brought him the most joy, like hearing about somebody picking a rose at sunset. You know, and this is what's so important, is to remember that often what brings us joy is very simple, or what brings others joy is very simple, but it's a matter of us taking the time really taking the time to appreciate an event like eating a baked potato or having that moment where we pour the mushroom gravy on top of the baked potato. You know, do we take the time to receive it? If our heart opens to pain, often the fear of hurt or pain can arise. And as our heart opens to joy, the fear of joy can arise. And if we think of what it's like to be a a young child, joyful, exuberant, we might remember what it would be like to be crushed in that moment as being a child in some way when we were over-exuberant. We might have been trusting and then suddenly crushed in some way. It could have been just being told that one was being (laughs) too high, having too much fun to settle down. And so often we're fear, uh, we have a fear of the joy in the world because we're fear, fearing that feeling of being crushed. It's like we don't trust the pain in the world and we don't trust the joy in the world. Finding a balance of appreciation of joy is how we learn balance with joy. Avoiding pain or holding on to pleasure is what brings so much destructiveness to our lives. And so with attachment to joy, it's often around alcohol or drugs or sex or food or relationships uh, that we get lost in this territory of attachment to joy rather than learning how to find a balance within it. What I'm saying is that we find that through appreciation. And when we're on retreat, this is the time to really start to explore it. So if you do have some food, for example, that actually brings you pleasure, you don't have to go, oh, oh, I shouldn't be be having this experience. Really see if you can taste, notice the pleasure, and be mindful of the enjoyment, and then be mindful of the appreciation. Or if you're sitting and you're having, you know, what we call a good sitting, uh, and then the joy comes up or the liking, again, we don't have to be afraid of the joy because joy is energizing. 
and you let the joy happen. Try not to take it personally and see if you can shift to the mindfulness again of appreciation rather than getting lost in an identification of taking it personally. This is the balance. And it's so important to see that we can go so off balance with something like concentration. Uh, And then we reject the joy, which is the very thing that helps deepen the practice. In my early years of life at IMS, uh, I met a teacher that most of you have heard of named Deepama, uh, who had this great balance of wisdom, emptiness, and also metta and joy. And it was like it was 50-50. It was so wonderful to be around her because she had had that commitment to both of these. And it was something that I really could emulate and want to be like. When Mahasi Sayadaw came, um, he just seemed to be so incredibly empty. And there was nothing like the metta to grab onto. And I know so many people who were afraid of that. It's like, (laughs) it was like, I don't know if I want to be that empty because there wasn't anything to hold on to. Because I'm quite kinesthetic, when I would be around Deepama, I would feel like I was around moonlight. You know, it was that beautiful, uh, luminous quality that's very light, but still something there to hold on to. When I was around Mahasi, it felt much more like very distant starlight. It was like he he was so deep. you know, that it was really hard to find something there. And in my years of practice after meeting them, there would be times when I would have a glimpse of that moonlight and a glimpse of the starlight, and it would be like a lighthouse. It's like, oh yeah, I remember that. That's where I'm going. You know, it was really reassuring to me. When I first met Sayadaw Upandita, it felt like from the very first moment that I met him, he was trying to um, help me (laughs) uh, cut through my attachment to my own heart. It was like uh, he was this great swordsman. And when I would walk in the room, it felt like he would just slash my heart, just slash it to bits. And I would just, tears would come down my eyes, and I said to him, but that's my home, you know? It was like the one thing that I feel like in my early life I had, you know, that somehow um, I had this joyful heart uh, in the spite of a lot of suffering. And from the moment I met him, he was slashing it. Uh, And it was so painful. I can't tell you how painful it was, but he was right. You know, I was really attached to it, and yet I couldn't believe he was trying to uh, take that away. Um, And so over the years, what helped me through uh, some of those years with Sayadaw Upandita, 
um, was remembering this fairy tale. It's called The Golden Key by George MacDonald. Uh, and it's a beautiful story about the spiritual journey. Uh, and this um, girl called Tangle uh, meets the oldest man, the old man of the sea, the oldest man of the earth. And then she meets the oldest man of all. And he, this oldest man of all is a very young child. And he tells her that he can help her with anything. Uh, and she looks at him, and there's a long description of this repose that this oldest um, man of all has, who is a very young, young child. And it's said that um, the heart of this child was too deep for any smile to reach from its heart to its face. Get a sense of that. That's what that distant starlight is like, even though we might not sense that there's a lot of metta there. It's just that it's so deep. You know, that it <laughs> it's like the heart is so deep that it, it's just, it just would be too long a distance for the smile to reach to the surface, so it just stays there. <laughs> so we don't have to be afraid of sometimes just emptiness, you know, without the metta. We don't have to be too attached to the heart. Uh, what I found is that by letting go the whole world that I w- had made um, secondary to that heart opened up, and I felt like I could let go of control much more and be more free. Ultimately, if you look at whatever you're attached to, it's exclusive and it's suffering, even if it seems like something like metta. I have a um, friend that I talked about who died this past spring uh, on the big island of Hawaii. And as she journeyed closer to death, she would call me sometimes and she said, you know, there's so few people who would understand this, but I'm experiencing so much joy. And her voice was one of these wonderful, deep, sexy voices that are so um, seductive and lovely to hear. And she would talk about this joy she was experiencing. And she'd say, you know, when I just look at a flower, you know, there's so much joy. And then she said, you know, the ultimate thing is that I have no more responsibilities. All I have to do is die. And that's what we're doing here. You know, we, one time when I was listening to a talk by Stephen Smith, um, he was talking about uh, the Brahma world and that the Brahma world is a place of no responsibility. And at the time I was feeling like a donkey. You know, I felt like I was holding so <laughs> much responsibility. It's sort of that time of my life, uh, midlife. You know, we hold the young and the old. And it's age-appropriate to feel like a donkey. But I was, you know, just feeling that weight of responsibility. And when I heard him say, 
oh, the Brahma world is just a place of no responsibility. Just the thought of that world brought me joy and happiness. <laughs> and you know, I mean, I can look at all of you and I know that one of the joys of being here is having so little responsibility. <laughs> They've even taken leaf raking away from us. <laughs> We don't even get to break leaves. I mean, like, what it, we have these big responsibilities, a yogi job. You know, but really, from the perspective of out in the world, this is not high pressure. <laughs> <laughs> so to think, oh, all that we have to be responsible for is to let go of control and to die. And how beautiful that is. There's a great Native American saying that I am so grateful for each day of life that any day is a good day to die. And try to remember that each day of practice, that one could be so grateful for each day of the practice that it's a good day to die. And that means in this language here that we have that courage and willingness to face the attachment and to face the aversion so that we see how we chain ourselves and how we can be free through seeing it. One of the last things I want to say about joy is how um, comparing really kills it. If there's the slightest bit of joy and we start comparing, it finishes joy off <laughs> really well. You know, so if we're comparing, uh, the, you know, this moment with the last sitting that we had that was so great, you know, forget it. There's no possibility of joy. If we're comparing ourselves with others, there's no possibility for joy. Uh, it's so painful, this comparing mind. And the Buddha taught that comparing is madness. And it kills gratitude. It kills joy. And please beware of comparing. There's a great Neruda poem, and it's really about holding all the different joys and sorrows in this world in a succinct way. I'm just reading a part of it. He said, if on a road you find a boy stealing apples, and a deaf old man with an accordion. Remember that I am the boy, the apples, and that old man. Do not harm me by chasing the boy. Do not strike the old bum. Do not throw the apples in the river. It's a very poetic way of describing us, our hearts, as being everyone, in all beings. Wherever we're aversive or attached, there's no gratitude and no joy. It's not possible. You know, so it's when the heart has that quality of just being open to life just as it is, that pure exploration, 
and wisdom will come. It's the gateway to awakening because the, the soft heart will just be touched by that moment. And that's it. That's the awakening in and of itself. We tend to keep thinking that it's some special moment that's supposed to happen, but it can be eating a baked potato. It can be flushing a toilet. It can be vomiting. You know, we just have this idea that awakening is supposed to happen when we're sitting doing what? (laughs) I mean, it's so funny what we tend to have these ideas about what awakening is. And it's really awakening to whatever's happening in the moment. Good old Ananda, he was lying down to go to sleep. Just that moment, any moment, it's possible for us to wake up. I saw a film on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once where uh, some of the people in the audience he was talking to were very frustrated with how slow change was happening in terms of uh, oppression, racial oppression in our country was going. And so somebody yelled out with a kind of anger at him, how long? You know, how long is this going to take? You know, just so frustrated, how long? And he just took that, and he, his eyes lit up, and he said, not long. You know, and it just, he just kept saying it like a trance over and over again. How long? Not long. How long? Not long. How long? Not long. It was just complete joy at the beauty of just standing by the truth of equality. And that, that the path itself was beauty. That it, that's what we're doing. It's like, it's the trail itself of awakening that's joyful. How long? Not long. Let's sit for a minute. May we all be able to leave this world so little and so much joy beyond its objects.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.